I, I'm on the right uh, website, I think, for, uh, I guess, dubious audio quality. Yeah, that's sort of what we pride ourselves on. Yeah. Dubious quality. Not even audio. Just, <laughs> just, just quality, quality of thought, Dang. quality of expression, everything. It's just all dubious. Really, you guys are pushing, I think, the uh, the quantity angle, and I think that's mostly just Nick posting bullshit in random. <laughs> yes. Although the uh, the recent magic discussion has been quite entertaining in its earnestness, I was shocked. <laughs> I didn't know anybody cared about magic. Oh man, you have tapped into like a vein of like nerd. I don't even know. Like this, this is rarefied you, shit. Yeah. I was standing on the precipice of diving into that cesspool. Okay. And then I got that uh, Planeswalkers on okay. us on Steam. Mm-hmm. And I hate it so hard <laughs> that I just cannot stomach <laughs> magic at all anymore. It might be fun with real people. I think that's the only saving grace. If I was playing with people I liked, then I could do magic. But otherwise, it is uh, it is anathema. Yeah, I think that's like... The, the social aspect is what kept me in it for so long. It certainly wasn't the cheapness. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, student budget, buying $200 boxes of booster pack sets. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah. So you can shift through, uh, sift through for that rare card that you need to complete <clears throat> your, your deck that will ultimately get blown up by the guy that's running the blue deck and has yeah. a cancel spell that actually kills a creature. Gosh, how's that fair? I'm done. Four bounces, no, and four <laughs> counter spells. Fuck this deck. Oh, magic! But that's waterfront bouncer. About. This is the worst deck ever. I hate you. <laughs> oh, yeah. magic. So, did, did you play actually magic at some point? Yeah, I used yeah. to have a pretty bitch in black and red deck with a lot of direct player damage. Okay, that's the good stuff. And yeah. it's considered cheap as hell, which is great because it's sure to infuriate your opponents. I don't care, man. I would get blown up so bad because I would have the crappiest creatures. But then, you know, <laughs> it doesn't matter when you're casting Fireball, Volcano, and Soul Burn all on one <laughs> turn. Yeah, the, the Raging Goblin, not so hot. But the DD spell's pretty good. He was just there to make sure that, like, you know, he was blocking that 6-6 six, six creature that, you know, didn't have Trample. So whatever, <laughs> he died, and now it's my turn. Prepare for domination. <laughs> yeah, in fact, as a result of the the forum discussions, I've dug out all my old cards from storage, and like I've, I've been leaving through them. I'm like, oh, my old Sliver deck, Sliver oh, Queen. Yes. I remember you. Yeah, the bonus for ha- all the slivers you have out. Oh God, it's ridiculous. I uh, I have missed that deck so much. I mean, if one can actually say they miss magic cards, I don't know. <laughs> I think that's something I shouldn't admit publicly. Yeah, Magic was one of the... Magic, not unlike Warhammer, uh, okay. drew me in with the extensive amount of lore that sort of surrounded the actual game. Yeah. No, I mean, like, uh, I had a job in a computer warehouse once, and we would play on lunch for, like, two hours every day in the middle of the day. <laughs> and I think half that playtime was devoted to running to a terminal nearby to check the rulings on certain types of actions. Like, that's that's a bit much. I think we were in too deep. <laughs> yeah. You dug too deep, too greedily. You know what they awoke there on the lower west side of Columbus. <laughs> but magic can be discussed elsewhere at uh, nauseum. 
Um, so I guess we're doing the book thing again. Um, maybe we're the only two people left doing the book thing, but that's okay because it's fun. It's, yes. I don't know. All the those books, other jerks are them. missing out. That's what I say. Yeah, yeah. Fuck them. Uh, okay, no, actually, don't fuck them. Please listen to this. It's uh, it's fun and enjoyable and rewarding. Please don't hate me. Um. <laughs> so I, you know, there's there's been a bit of a lag between episode one and any other content that that sucks it's what happens when the government lays you off and then you have to move all of your stuff into storage and then you flee to europe for two months and now you live in the ghetto so (laughs) (laughs) how was europe by the way apologies for the delay um it was fantastic it was a really good trip um i guess i should put up photographs maybe somewhere i ran into uh, last otaku off the forums he's over in munich right now doing uh some housework living work au pair stuff i guess for uh some family there and so he ran around munich and got rather drunk and sang rem in the streets it was pretty great nice i hear that's what americans have to do while they're in munich that's a prerequisite otherwise they revoke your visa uh, yeah, yeah, they send you right back home, actually. Uh, it's it's very important. It's right there next to the Hitler salute in public as often as possible. <laughs> uh, but, uh, so, yeah, a l- little bit of a content lag, so we're going to be doing, like, three quick hits on the books, and I guess as much as we can remember from them uh, will be good enough. Yeah. So, uh, let's see, where the hell did we leave off with the psychopath test? Oh, we're gonna we're going way back. All right, I'll put yeah, on my way. hat for that. That's all right. I can do it because I actually really enjoyed that book. But that's why the I kept it on the opinion. list. You know, it, it, it's fairly old, but I wanted to keep it on the list because I remember you saying this is really really good. It's one of the best books I've read in quite a while. <laughs> so I'm like, Which okay, I, I was actually surprised at the amount of negative opinion out there. Yeah, and I'm in the negative camp, which uh, is unfortunate. I wanted to like it. I love the premise. But, well, um, I, to, just to preface this, I was probably um, biased by the the sort of fake love affair I've been having with the author because of his appearances on This American Life, which is how this you know book came to our attention in the first place. This is um, true. But I mean, yeah, I I read the entire book with his voice speaking in the background, and I don't know, I just couldn't, I couldn't get enough. I was eating it up. Yeah, he he does have that sort of a voice that. I don't know how to put this. Gives you an erection. Um, <laughs> he's <laughs> he's quite Whoa. a smooth talking gentleman. So, and if you see him in real life, you'll realize why that's so funny. You should look up a picture of him right now. Uh, you know, I, I've seen him before, but I'll do this for the sake of the internet. Because, <laughs> yeah, oh man, I'm surprised that anybody found him attractive enough to marry. Oh Jesus he is Christ! Like the, At least he's a prototypical, like cottage living english person man this guy eats bangers and mash three times a day <laughs> he's so british it fucking hurts yeah he really looks it yeah um, he's even got so the harry look... potter glasses what's up with that exactly he it's is way too prototypically british it's it's shocking you think that those <laughs> kind of people only exist in what you think like one of the parents looks like in a old uh, Charles Dickens novel poor, and then you meet John Rosler and you're legs. like good no lord uh, internet internet god damn it am I still here yes you are okay. here John connection is clipping pretty hard okay that's alright uh, as long as you're recording into something else 
If you hit oh, yeah, one of those yeah. laggy spots, just keep talking because you were coming through fine. Okay, great. Good. Yeah, I was missing a lot of what you were saying, so uh, that's fine. Yeah, It we'll, doesn't matter. None we'll fix of it's it in important. post because there's post that happens on this. <laughs> no, why would you lie about that? So let's, uh, let's start with, I mean, I'll admit the book was choppy, and I'll let you run with that because that seems to be the main complaint. Yeah, I mean, that was... The, the most striking part of it for me was the disjointed narrative structure. It never really feels like it comes together. It, it just sort of feels thrown together pretty hastily. Like, well, here are all these things that I've done while I was doing them. I had a similar sort of vein of thought, but I never really thought to turn this into a coherent work. I need some money. Rent is kind of late. <laughs> uh, bangers, I need another, and I, I need bangers and mash is expensive. Bangers and mash. I eat like seven pounds of this shit a day. It's really <laughs> expensive, you wouldn't think. Um, so I'm just going to like put these essays together, and I'm going to give it a catchy title and put like bizarre psycho LSD shit with rabbits or something on the front and hope everybody likes it. Yeah. And I can understand that because I, I was kind of hoping that the narrative thread would stay more close or at least more related to... Um his own struggles with judging others through the filter of the psychopath test. Right. Um, and I think that there was towards the middle, a little bit where that gets shaken up and then he's less trusting of the test. Um, even though he had bought into it, but yeah, he just never comes out. He needed like a chapter in there that just solidified everything where he is, you know, either completely disillusioned or has a revelatory moment. And he kind of, he just kind of skirts that never really goes into it. His opinion seems to shift suddenly. And then, yeah, but yeah, I don't the, know. The the opinion shift is sudden, but then you're left with really no resolution that I could tell. Yeah, well, and I think that that yeah, and that's sort of typical of him. He's just giving you the the sort of only the facts, ma'am. No opinion, except that it's full of opinion until a conclusion is required. At which point, he just sort of bows out and leaves the room politely. Yeah, it's it's odd to go through being, you know, first person-y about everything and very, very personal. And then say, well, no, I, I'm going to not weigh in on this at the end. You've been weighing in on it the whole fucking time. Just come on, own up, dude. It's okay. That's what we <laughs> well, do. That, that's a weird thing. He wasn't, I mean, he's he's a part of the story. Um, but he's he spends a lot of time weighing in when he goes through the training and begins to assess everyone on this scale. Right, kind of how psychopathic you are, where you know you've got this tool, and if you, they, like they say, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So um, he he goes around pretty much applying the rubric of the psychopath test to everyone he meets, but that's only for one chapter. Then he just sort of progressively introduces us to people who are psychopathic, or takes us through um, some weird trippy uh, '60s and '70s mental health experimentation. And then you meet, like, a, a dictator who is clearly psychopathic, I guess. Yeah. And then you meet a CEO who may or may not be a That psychopath. was my favorite story, the CEO story. Yeah. It was so, God, the was reason good. that was your favorite is because John, he comes off as so awkward, which is the greatest thing in all of the stories that he tells. That's it's sort true. of like, you can feel the, when he says something... And then there's, uh, you know, the, the recognition that what you just said was really awkward. And then you can almost, even when reading the book, you can almost hear him sort of dryly swallow in that awkward moment between the pause of the person he asked the question to, trying to figure out 
where he's getting off and uh, him realizing that he's just totally insulted this person. Yeah, no, that definitely comes through. It's, it's very well done in that respect. You can almost feel like you're in the room with him as he's doing this uh, exchange with this CEO guy, never saying the right thing and always <laughs> feeling uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. So, I, yeah, that that was definitely my favorite bit, that the CEO guy was crazy. I mean, psychopath, who knows, but crazy, certainly. Yeah. I think, well, I mean, though, I it, think... it's important to have portraits of yourself and tigers and shit, because that's what people do, right? Uh, yeah, I guess. As long as you don't have, like, sculptures of yourself riding a tiger or as a tiger, I don't know. I might give you some leeway. The, the, uh, I, I just big... had a dangerous thought now that the, the, myself as a tiger, like you, you gave me the mental image, <laughs> and now I will not sleep for days. It's all right, John. Maybe that's your spirit animal, and you have to embrace the tiger in order to succeed. Embrace the tiger? Is it like do cocaine? Is that what they're calling it now? <laughs> I don't know yet. Charlie Sheen has ruined tigers. You're right. That, yeah. that metaphor is falling short. God damn it, Sheen. You burned too brightly it's, it's over so quickly now yeah got to simmer low and dull roast for years. and it's it's over now we're just you know everybody just waiting for the obit More unless he's gonna have some sort of weird resurrection like mickey rourke now see that would be interesting if he literally had a resurrection like he overdoses on coke <laughs> he's dead for like 12 days and then he comes back and he's like Fuck Jesus! I was dead four times as long, and yeah. that's where the whole Winning. thing takes off from there. Yes, Charlie Sheen. Then he literally would have a cult, and and that would I think be the best place for him. Crazy <laughs> cult leader. Well, at least it would raise the prospect that he would be killed, which that's also true. <laughs> Mortality rates for crazy cult leaders fairly high. I will say that the one nice thing about the psychopath test mm -hmm. is that it kind of it drew a line in my mind about what I'm willing to say off the cuff about people. Like, I don't just call someone a psychopath anymore. I feel like I'm more deliberate when using that term. Yeah, I, it it makes you at least confront the notion that evaluating people's mental states and their mental competency is a whole hell of a lot hairier than we usually give it credit for being. Yeah. Well, and it's also we kind of just dismiss people as psychopaths. Like you say, that person's just crazy. They're a psychopath. And it's probably, A, they're not a psychopath. And B, if they really were, you probably shouldn't be yelling that at them. Yeah, they're going to kill you. Psychopaths like schizophrenics both tend to kind of get... That, that's a term that you just throw out. Oh, this person's clearly crazy in one of these fashions. Throw out the medical term as a pejorative. And then you sort of just cut them out of the human category as a result. And uh, sometimes Which, that can come back to bite you, and certainly it's a morally questionable judgment. And that's one of the uh, – I mean, that that thread that you just picked up right there would have been really interesting had it been more um, kind of uh, – I don't even know, followed more in the book. Where, you know, because he, he's even saying uh, – talking about the inventor of the psychopath test, I can't remember his name right now, but there's this – a lot of people accuse him of just uh, sort of grouping people into this category – and then you essentially just shoot them into the sun because like humanity needs to be rid of them there's no there's nothing to be done you've identified them and not unlike cancer you need to isolate it and probably just smother it yeah and that's the difficulty with identity politics in general and and identity within societies 
whenever you start defining an in-group and an out-group for humanity, that becomes fairly dangerous fairly quickly. Uh, as soon as you're in the non-human category, all those concepts from the Enlightenment about rights and self-ownership just sort of disappear, and you become <laughs> a ward of the state, or you're jettisoned into space or something. And I mean, that's like really the crux of it. So then you've, you've got the state, which is entrusted or at least obligated with the protection of the people. If it's not doing that, then why does it exist, period? And right. then you have this class of people who are widely believed to be a real danger to everybody else. So that's where Tony comes in. Tony, who is sort of bookends uh, the book itself, because he's in the first chapter and he's in the last chapter, uh, with a lot of Scientologists bashing uh, in between. Um, so there's this guy, Tony, and he seems charming and nice and everything, but he's in a British mental institution with people who are murderers and, you know, serial rapists and the worst of the worst. And John Ronson gets into this because he can't figure out why Tony's in there. He's trying to get to the bottom of why is Tony, A, considered a psychopath, and B, why is that such a bad thing that you would essentially incarcerate him? Right, and... uh to be clear about how Tony got there in the first place, he was uh, on trial for, was it murder or just grievous bodily harm? I think it was straight up assault. Like, he nearly killed somebody. Right. I mean, I know that he severely injured someone. I can't remember if they died. But yeah, that sounds right. Just straight up assault. And so he pled an insanity defense. And that led him uh, to the Yeah, he said, oh, result. You know, nothing will happen. Well, something did. Right. And so now that he's proven to these people, to their uh, confidence that he is uh, clearly insane, he can't go back on that. You can't become un-insane anymore. Oh, you know what? The, the, the book doesn't start and end with Tony, actually. We, I left out the part where there's that strange the book, Scandinavian fellow yeah. just randomly sending out this you know, mad scribbling to people. Yeah, which, I mean psychopathy in his case certainly not extremely eccentric probably in need of a steady dose of lithium yeah i would imagine so well i think i i sort of just even thinking about that it, it kind of contextualizes the rest of the book because you have all these very intelligent people being sucked into uh this fantasy that sort of leads nowhere uh and the 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 inability of those people to correctly understand the motives of the person who created the work kind of, you know, casts a little bit of a shadow on the rest of what's going on. Maybe I'm supposed to, you know, take that thread. He doesn't really help me out by making a bridge himself, but I mean the author that is, but you know, it's, it's just, yeah, that's an interesting little, yeah, I don't know. Just had a revelation right now. Thinking out loud folks. <laughs> Mr. Probably White, quick nothing. on his feet. Yeah. Quick on his feet. I'm, I'm good at apologizing for things. So that's what I tend to do. Uh, then, my God, we must be like the worst possible matchup for recording something then, because I have the tendency to apologize for everything as well. So, well, apologist in the sense that, like, oh, you know, this idea isn't that bad. Let me tell you why. Not like I'm sorry. I do both. So, <laughs> so you apologize. I'm sorry you didn't like the book. Here's I'm you sorry you didn't like, like my apologetic style argument about this particular topic. It's really Forgive unfortunate. Forgive me that while you didn't. I collapse provide... into the. You know, yeah. the psychic fetal position while trying to, uh, you know, appease you. <laughs> yeah, more or less. It's uh, it, it's like collapsing into a singularity at times. It's uh, <laughs> like personally hazardous and, and hazardous to city blocks. Uh, deference to, upon deference. Oh, yes. 
But that's all right. Yeah. So, I mean, I can totally understand people's complaints against the book, but it was a fun romp. Like, you know, I read it in three days. That's got to mean something, you know? Yeah. No, I mean, it, it was a quick and easy read, I thought, and it does raise really compelling ideas. I thought that was its strongest point was not so much that it was a successful single coherent narrative, not that it fleshed out every idea perfectly, but that it at least mapped out the ideas in this area and let you get kind of a, a top-down view of some of the issues that are involved in dealing with mental illness and judging other people and existing as part of this crazy society that we have, uh, human society generally, that is. And um, I thought it did that very, very well in just highlighting the tensions and the issues that uh, that was very expertly handled. Well, yeah, and I think that maybe the reason that the narrative is so weak is because Ronson kind of refuses to think in those stark terms. Like, he's constantly vacillating over, you know, what it means to be a psychopath and then what you do with the information you have once you decide somebody is actually dangerously insane. Um, I actually found a dog-eared page, and I just want to read this because I think it's a great paragraph. Um, it's This is at the end of... Uh, the chapter where he's talking about the CEO or he's been speaking to him or I don't even know beforehand. I think he went to the factory, the Sunbeam factory that got all shut down before he actually talked to the CEO. But regardless, uh, he says, as I glanced at the phraseology of the research report, dull and unfathomable to outsiders like me, I thought that if you have to the ambition to become a villain, the first thing you should do is learn to be impenetrable. Don't act like Blofeld monocled and ostentatious we journalists love writing about eccentrics we hate writing about impenetrable boring people it makes us look bad the duller the interviewee the duller the prose if you want to get away with wielding true malevolent power be boring i thought that was brilliant that is actually a very good passage and <laughs> I, I will say regardless of the structure of the book i think ronson is a, a very adept writer well he's a journalist you know i don't know he maybe the the long form is not his forte. He's a better essayist, which is sort of what you said at the very beginning of this conversation. It's sort of a loose collection of essays that don't really tie together that well. So Right, but I, I will say the quality of the essays, what each one does in isolation, seems to me to be pretty high. Uh, yeah. And so I won't impugn his general skill at writing. I think he's very good at what he does. Yeah. But, I mean, he does, you know, in part of writing is having a good title and subtitle. And when you call something a journey through the madness industry and then don't really talk about the industrialization of madness except for a brief part where you talk about over-medicated kids, um, which was another like weirdly ambiguous part of this book. When you're having that conversation with the mom, you so want to hate on her. But like the kid was probably like, going to kill himself if he wasn't on Zoloft or whatever. Yeah, I'm, and that's... Again, the difficult part where you've got someone else taking responsibility for the life of another, whether it's the state or whether it's the parent, uh, it, it's so difficult to trust that judgment and to say that, okay, what you're doing is right or what you're doing is wrong. It's a subjective judgment every time. There's no objective test for this, as Ronson goes to great lengths to demonstrate Um or they, they, I think his the the real thrust is that there is an objective test, but that that objective test is so difficult to apply and can be misapplied in the wrong hands, which is sort of where things are going. Where you have social workers and case managers who aren't psychologists administering, uh, you know, mental 
uh, competency tests that they they probably don't know enough about to really get right. Well, uh, yeah, I guess you could go that route. I, I went a little stronger and just came to the conclusion and I guess divined that perhaps Ronson was either there or close in, in this conclusion as well, that there is no real good way to define this objectively. Mm. There's so much subjectivity inherent in both the judgment and the unknowable nature of another human being's mind. I guess that, there's that no is, way to evaluate. That's uh, that might be true. But then you know, at the same time, after reading the psychopath test, I decided to double down on being terrified of humanity, and I spent a lot of time like researching um, American serial killers. And there are some seriously effed up people in American history. And so when you say that there's no way to know the mind of another, even if it is inscrutable, you have these examples of just profoundly broken individuals uh, exacting a horrible cost on the communities that they, they arrive in. Do you, so have a, do you have a story, a quick vignette about one of them? Because this sounds interesting. Well, I mean, you just think about... Um, I mean. Uh, John Wayne Gacy is the first to come to mind, but that's just because he's the most popular. Well, sure. Uh, I mean, dude dresses up in a clown suit and puts kids in his floorboards. That's pretty attention-grabbing. But there was actually um, there was somebody who was worse, and I had never heard about him. It's funny. As you look, I'll ramble. that I, I was listening this very day to the Residence album, uh, The River of Crime which is full of these little tales about different people at different times who committed heinous acts of, of criminal behavior and the history of uh, executions in the U.S. and all sorts of craziness set to what vaguely amounts to music. Uh, <laughs> I would not really call them a band in the traditional sense, but holy shit, that's a good album, and I recommend it. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, the guy's name was Dean Coral. Okay. Uh, he was nicknamed the Candyman, so that's where I guess the the folklore ghost comes from too. Okay. Uh, but he like inspired Gacy, <laughs> so you know. It's good the, to have inspiration. Apparently, he didn't kill as many people, but uh, you know, he still you know was responsible for being the the sort of muse to one of the worst mass murderers. And then there's this guy Gary Ridgway. I know who, Ridgway. Yeah. Yeah. The what they call him the the Green River Killer. They convicted him on 48, and he admitted to nearly 90. Like, that is, there's something wrong with you. It's like, it's not even like he would just kill people. He was, like, posing cadavers in the woods around, uh, I don't even, I think it was somewhere in Washington State. But, like, you know, yeah. So these guys, clearly, are nuts. Yeah, yeah, they they are certainly insane. I would not stand up to defend them. Um, And so I think those are fairly strong and easy cases for someone to come in and judge and and you don't even have to judge the sanity level though you can just the acts that they commit are enough to say what you're doing is so reprehensible regardless of your state of mind something has to be done about you so that makes it so much easier if someone's acting out in such a way whether it's for reasons of insanity or just reasons of ignorance or uh, malice or uh, let's say technical legal insanity with things uh, uh, like an intoxicated effect sort of thing. Um, okay, that makes it easy because you've got a clear objective act that you can judge. You can weigh that. You don't have to get into their mind. Now, it's fun to go and do that in a way and like, you know, what are they thinking? 
what happens in the mind of a killer. That's a very intriguing uh, sort of concept, which I guess is why that Dexter show works so well for people. Um, but I think when you don't have the clear, reprehensible act, that's where the line blurs, and that's where judgment yeah. becomes basically impossible, if not. Well, the issue is that, you know, because the the heinous nature of these crimes, people immediately begin to try to think of systems or ways to filter out people like this to predict when the next right. insane thing is going to happen. And I think that part of the problem is that, you know, you're never... I mean, from what I understand, uh, the administration of the psychopath test uh, basically happens once a person has already finished sort of committing a crime. So... As far as it's, you know, it's not a Geiger counter. You know, you're not going to be able to walk around with something that you point at people and it tells you whether they're going to be a mass murderer or something. But, meh. Maybe we should just start running this through the uh, the guidance counselor, you know, system there in the public schools. <laughs> That's right. They're so competent and so good at what they do already. Let's entrust them with judging the sanity of their students as well. I think that'd be good. Um, and. But yeah, then we can just screen everybody nationwide, and uh, I don't know, lots of jobs building jails after that. <laughs> there aren't that many jobs building jails. There are actually many jails laying fallow or yeah, empty. And, uh, yeah, that, that is true. There are a lot of them that have been abandoned, um, which is funny because there's so much overcrowding, but we can't afford to maintain <laughs> these things, so we can't use them. Whatever. That's an entirely other issue. Are we done with the psychopath test? I, feel I think like we're, yeah. We probably plumbed its deaths enough. It's it's been thirty minutes already. Somehow I don't even know. Um, yeah. Well, you know, it's a whole book. It's hard to talk about a book for less than twenty minutes. Eh, that's also true. Um, I guess let's see. Next, we had Player of Games. Yes, with I'm, I don't even know how to pronounce that guy's name. Jaron Gerga. Gergi. Gerga. First of all, the author loses points for having a main character with, you know, an inscrutable name. Yeah, I was not really a fan of his choice of nomenclature in this book. <laughs> it's um, like you can't, I can't remember what anybody was named because they're all so bizarre. Like oh, yeah. I know Flair Imsaho was the the whatever you call it, the probe that was with him the whole time, or the drone. I don't even remember what they called those things. Yeah, the levitating like Flair Imsaho, and like it was the real name was like Marwin Skell or something. Well, yeah. Oh my gosh! Omg! You just spoiled the whole book, John. You gotta, you know. Warn people. This is the podcast where we spoil everything. <laughs> That's true. Unapologetically. Yeah. My yeah. apologies for making you trying to make you apologize. It's true. Uh, we do spoil I, everything. Yeah. I'm so sorry that I put you in the position where you had to apologize for <laughs> shit. <laughs> um, oh yeah. So Jaron Gerga is part of the culture, which is a highly advanced spacefaring, not even really spacefaring, space dominating race. When you no longer need planets to survive, when instead you build enormous platforms in space that you can terraform to whatever you want them to be, yeah, okay, I think you do dominate space. Well, yeah, he's got, like, I don't even know what's, uh, so on whatever floating asteroid Jaren lives on, uh, he can basically go down through an elevator to the engine that drives the asteroid. They've got asteroid engines, people. Yeah, I mean, you're not even just inhabiting and we're cutting NASA's you... budget. Uh, yeah, <laughs> That's, this is what we need to be aspiring to. I want livable asteroids 
in this solar system in the next 15 years. Go, Obama. Yeah. Do it. <laughs> yeah, what are you doing? The economy's flailing. We need to give it an injection of space dollars. Space or dollars at least create an economy that no longer relies on money at all. <laughs> because everybody has essentially whatever they want. Yeah, and that's uh, the culture is the ultimate utopia where every desire is easily fulfilled. No one wants for anything. Even sex changes, and those are you know prohibitively expensive. I know. Uh, mm. Well, but they, these aren't just you know physiological sex changes. I don't. I mean, I guess I don't really fully understand the term physiological because, or maybe I'm just using it inappropriately because they're totally physiological. You're. Your Let, testes become radical, ovaries. Radical it ain't sex just change. like, you know, an innie doesn't become an outie. You are a different sex. And yeah, you can get pregnant. Different. And, yeah, you can have children, which is, um, I think, a case to argue against the creation of this technology ever. Because any technology that makes it feasible for me to be pregnant is just Well, we don't know, John. You have a gland in your brain that will secrete chemicals... Given you know very great names like you know Serene Blue, or you know I don't even I don't even know what the other names were, but they, they kept on describing these different chemical secretions coming out of a gland. And, Whenever you know, they used those names, it reminded me of the Jeff Noon book Vert, where they had all the like feathers that you would put down your throat that took you to different states of existence. And they were I, always called curious things. In fact, Curious Yellow being the plot pivotal one. I I could never. Uh, imagine anything but standing in front of a paint sample rack at Home Depot trying to figure out what Sherman Williams <laughs> meant by, you know, whatever name they gave to this blue. Um, but, yeah, so you, maybe childbirth's not that bad. You don't even need the epidural because you are blocking pain receptors through a gland in your brain. I mean, shit, at that point you could probably just, like, they could just teleport the kid out of you. astral projection just send your consciousness <laughs> to some other place where it's, like, Playing Halo or something while you're giving birth. Yeah. Like, oh, man, I completely lost that fucking blood gulch match. Oh, I have a child. I guess I have to love it. Can we have a... God, what were those things called? I cannot remember. A drone. I'm just going to keep calling them drones, even though I feel like that's not what they were called. Yeah, drone. I don't have the book handy. Yeah, all my books are in boxes in another city. So I'm just kind of making do with, like, notes that I wrote. Two months ago, on a piece of paper. I'm glad I still have the paper. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, comfortable, comfortable paper. I also sleep on it. Yes, yes. I've got a whole uh, nest of bedding. It's it's very great. Um, some cedar chips, too, keeps everything fresh. Yeah. So um, to keep the spoilers going, Gerga okay. is a prolific game player. And games are sort of important. Well, he, he's one of the best. I, I feel like there's always... there's a. He's one of the most well-respected, but games are... I just never understood why games would be so important, and maybe that's just because I can't comprehend of a world in which no one has to work or do anything important, so that I mean, they it, all just become obsessed with, you know, the chess from Star Trek. Yeah, I mean, it seems like their civilization has grown to such a degree that the, any progress that needs to be made is basically handled by that contact group. who does all the exploration and uh, empire annihilation and whatever else. And uh, so I think they've concentrated all their productivity into like some robots and a handful of people. And everybody else is just left to do whatever. 
it seems like that plays as just a giant computer. I mean, that was sort of the mystery of Contact uh, that it seemed like. And, and one of the things that the the culture sort of represents is a rather optimistic view of humanity's interaction with artificial intelligences far beyond our own because they they create what are known as minds, which are essentially incredibly complicated and huge supercomputers that do things like drive battleships or uh, move around even larger vessels that contain billions upon billions of people and have lakes and mountain ranges on top of them. Uh, yeah, so, it was interesting to watch. Like, it, all of these things are intelligent, not just the drones that you see in, in films that, or, or other books or anything like that. It's, it's the humanoid-shaped robot that has the AI that lets it do things. Or, yeah, so it's not just C-3PO and R2-D2. The Millennium Falcon is also thinking for itself. Right, so he's playing this inordinately difficult game against a spaceship. Yes. What are you doing today? I don't know. Hanging out with my warship. That would be awesome. You're hanging out with the warship. My buddy and me. It's important to maintain that relationship. Oh, man. That changes the whole context of that uh, my buddy and me commercial from the (laughs) 80s. Instead of like running around in the yard with the little stuffed boy doll, it's like floating through space, hugging a ship. It's traveling at, you know, several million light years (laughs) per minute. Slowly oh. turning to ice in a frozen vacuum. It's uh, probably not going to work so well, I think, <laughs> as a marketing tactic. Oh, uh, yeah. So the culture is, you know, super advanced and ever-expanding, and they are really into games. And so they discover a culture, at, or another culture, because they are the culture. For the yeah, purposes the, of this discussion, the, the culture Culture, what, capital C, is... <laughs> <laughs> the utopian civilization and everybody what else just was sucks. the name of that empire azad azad the but, empire of azad so they yeah. discover uh, at the far reaches of their influence a uh, an interstellar i mean i guess it is an interstellar empire uh, or at least a solar empire where you have uh, one race of you know dominating assholes uh, that base their entire society around a board game that is really complicated. Yeah, and in it's like fact, it's, Uber it's been described a lot in the book, but I still can't get like a visual, like mental picture of what the fuck the board looks like because <laughs> there are gels that change shape and texture when you look at them or touch them. I thought it was very important that they did not tip their hand and or that uh, Banks, the author, didn't tip his hand and go too much into the details of Azad because that would have just been too nerdy and alienating. Like, I, I feel like he kept a good pace on the book by not getting bogged down in the rules of Azad, but rather the, the sort of politics and interpersonal stuff that went on around it. Yeah, it definitely I mean, benefited honestly, from being a novel and not a textbook. I agree. Yeah. And, yeah. So... He goes there, he plays this game. Oh, by the way, the uh, the society is ruled by Apexes, which is actually the third sex. Yeah, and I'm not sure how this works. Sexes and he, he explained are at the top it. And, so the, the uh, Apexes, the males and the females, and I feel like what happens is the males can implant a baby in the... F- they can... I don't know, did the females get pregnant? I feel like it was the Apexes see, it, that got pregnant. 
it's just like the old Mystery Science Theater 3000 line where it's, now I ran my ovipositor down your throat and lay my eggs in your chest. <laughs> Uh, but yeah. I'm not an alien. Uh, the one puts the seed in the other, and that creates the blast of pore or whatever the scientific term is. And so zygote, I guess, that's what it is. So so you've got the <laughs> newly formed uh, life. I wish we start off as blast of pores. That sounds way cooler. Yeah, blast of pore is a pretty awesome word. Um, I'm going to paint that on this house since it's like, clearly... It's not be owned. Tag. I was gonna say it's not Gangster. owned by anybody. It's in the ghetto. I'm not paying rent. I don't even know <laughs> who owns this place at this point. How are there still utilities? Because um, <laughs> we're clearly not paying for those either. Um. Anyway, yeah. So the the apex inserts it into the female. Then, so it, it's like a, a three way steamy sex impregnation thing. I don't know. Yeah, who cares? All we know is that Azad is deeply screwed up. It's a highly stratified society. All the apexes are essentially jerks who deserve to die. and uh, More or less. And, <laughs> and, and so die they do. Well, die, yeah. So the culture shows up to sort of pee on their parade by having uh, Gerga um, enter into a tournament that essentially decides the next emperor. So you, you play Azad not just to you know, be famous or gain favor. You play Azad to gain real positions of power within the empire of Azad. Which, uh, so, you know, it sounds kind of ridiculous. You're like, okay, but this is this strange alien civilization that has taken the act of game playing to this absurd level where it dictates all of their society. Mm, really, political elections in the U.S. feel about the same anymore. So <laughs> it, it's not like we're much beyond a round of jeopardy determining who runs our country so uh i wish it was a round of jeopardy then we eliminate half the candidates at least then you have to know something or know something about sean connery films i it really depends on the category <laughs> yeah. um that's the only important category i mean uh, honestly yeah, yeah competence about zardoz important <laughs> oh snap zardoz Oh, my um, God. Um, so, yeah, they send Gerga to play this game just to see how well he can do, ostensibly. And so he's invited by the Azadians to play their game and do his best, and it's this big public media spectacle, crazy alien coming to play our game. And it turns out he's really good at it, and he starts whipping ass at this game, and that makes people nervous. And it looks like he's just going to forfeit. Uh, he'll continue to play... But they'll so he's forced to forfeit. Lose. They basically tell him, hey, you didn't right. win this match, even though you won this match. Just right. a heads up. We're going to let you continue to play. In. But, uh, yeah, nobody's going to think that you won. Sorry. Right. It would destroy the public confidence if all of the higher-ups were losing to this alien. So that's the manufactured situation. And the book really just peters out at the end, and it makes me very sad. Because they well, raise it up to this level where everything is tense and taut and everything is complex and interesting and then it all becomes a scheme cooked up by contact and this was all planned from the very beginning. And Yeah, I was really uh, disappointed that it wasn't just Azad collapsing in on the own, sort of collapsing in on itself. Like It was just sort of an implosion. Because, um, yeah, it's sort of... The whole, the whole society is absurd 
and the fact that it's based around this game is equally absurd. So it really kind of there was a strong internal logic that could have worked itself out. And even if you know you thought there were holes in it, it still would have been better than finding out that it was just uh, oh another conspiracy theory. Uh, whoops, just kidding. Yeah, the the whole like stupid Deus Ex Machina to use an apropos phrase for something cooked <laughs> up by computers is uh, it, it just it's a flimsy device and it it cheapens it so hard because you yeah. you have all this buildup and so eventually it just instead of being a, a sort of a somewhat anthropological look at the clash of these two cultures where games are so important the one treats them. They're important, but essentially trivial, and the other, they're important and, you know, of the utmost, uh, uh, I don't know, I guess they're important because they're just important. They actually structure their society around uh, how the game comes out, which sort of happens in the culture, but in a more frivolous way, like people talk to you at parties instead of make you emperor. Yeah, Um, the the difference between being famous and running an entire space empire. (laughs) Yeah, so, I mean... there was this, you know, sort of an interesting clash of cultures. Like, you know, you could have, they still have 30 pages to kind of talk about that. But instead, it's like, oh, no, we're just going to abandon all that. And this was essentially a trip to the zoo. More or less. And then uh, everybody gets murdered in the palace where the final game is being held. And Well, the emperor goes crazy, which was cool. Because emperors, they do go crazy in spectacular fashion. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciated the... Uh... The, the sense of chaos that he was able to sow there at the end and everything falling apart felt nice. Uh, it just was unfortunate that it was all that manufactured plot. If, it, if things had happened more organically, I think it would have been a pretty well perfectly told story. Yeah, no, I would have enjoyed it much, much more. Um, I mean, and, and to be fair, the ride was great. I really liked uh, leafing through it and I wasn't really bored ever. I just felt kind of let down by the ending, which... You know, doesn't I mean? It kind of means that the the book as a whole isn't awesome, but it was it was still well worth reading. I mean, I, it's I already you know, it's like you know, if you're taking a trip somewhere, the the destination wasn't that great, but you got to see some you know nice scenery on the way or found a really great restaurant. That's kind of like reading player of games, more uh, or less. You know, if every day is seven eighths really good and one eighth pretty shitty, it's still a pretty good day. I mean, I was like, I was really kind of worked up about how bad uh, the ending of the book was. But mm-hmm. then, like, I I went to, you know, Amazon, of course, because that's where I spend most of my time these days. And it was suggesting other uh, books from the Culture series. And I was, you know, I was definitely looking them over. So it can't have been that bad. Like, deep down in my subconscious, I was like, that was actually kind of fun. Well, I, think I wouldn't mind built, getting some more. He built a compelling universe. And yeah. so that kind of draws you in where you're like, well, you know, I could read more things in this setting because yeah. he does a good job creating characters. He does a very good job creating atmosphere. And if you're doing world building, like that's what you've got to do. And he does it expertly. And so, yeah, I, I definitely found it to be an accessible and engaging book. I think it's the first book I've sat and read for several hours straight through into the middle of the night. I I think I burned through 300 pages the first day yeah it just i couldn't put it down it was really 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 good yeah it was fun it was definitely a fun read um yeah you might be disappointed in the end but hey at least it's not number of the beast ah that will forever live in infamy (laughs) (laughs) oh god 
Oh, do we want to do we want to keep charging through this? Hit the trifecta. We we can do the third one if you'd like. Yeah, I've got the okay. time. You got the time. I got the time. All right, let's do it up. Uh, the third book in our marathon is Colin M. Turnbull's The Mountain People, aka People Are Dicks. You should hate them. More or less, this is one of the most <laughs> cynical, pessimistic, depressing books ever, which must explain pretty clearly why I love it. Um, <laughs> it, I don't know, I, I've read it twice now, and it is just a fantastic book. Even if you hate it all the way through, I think it still manages to be a fantastic book. And it's such a, a, a strange portrayal of, of not a culture that is controlled by computers that works uh, at such an advanced utopian level, not that is dominated by some sort of strange board game, but a society that basically fails at being a society at all, but can <laughs> kind of continues with the facade around it. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah, the thing that unites it is the fact that it's totally, like all of its participants are completely broken. More or less. Like This is a society made up of people who literally cannot function in society <laughs> well i i i wonder if they can't function because so before we get too far this let's, is the story of the, the the eek yeah uh and the eek are a tribe that live uh in the the desert space between kenya uh oh gosh let me look There's at the map kenya and the sudan i want to say yeah it's like it's the shitty part of sudan though uh it's so it's <laughs> which which part is sudan, that again Kenya, the, the part that's not all green. Like, there are parts of the Sudan that would be okay to live in. This is apparently not one of those parts. I mean, beyond getting raided by Janjaweed militia from the north and all that jazz. Yeah, you know, between militias, tribes, mortar fire, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's actually a wonderful place. I'll, uh, let's let's go on vacation, I think. <laughs> oh, you yeah, it sounds great. Yeah, I want to um, hang out with some Turkana, get knifed. <laughs> get wrist knifed? Yeah, wrist you knifed out. even. Uh, so it's, it's, they, the Eek live at the, sort of the crux of Sudan, Kenya, and Uganda. So northern Uganda, southern Sudan, and uh, western Kenya all come together in the area where the Eek spend most of their time, you know, stealing food from each other. And the Eek used to be hunter-gatherer people um, who were forced to settle uh, by the the governments that were formed in you know post colonial Africa, and they were given a pretty crappy farmland, or pretty crappy land to farm, and so immediately resorted to essentially eating their own young. More or less, they used to be rather successful hunter gatherer raiders, and then after the transition, it just didn't work, and their society shattered. And uh, when Turnbull was there. At least the first time I know he went back again. Um, the first time he was there, it was during the worst famine in recent memory. And so things were far, far worse even than they would have been otherwise. Uh, even so, if even half of the events that he described actually happened, and viewing it through the lens of a terrible, devastating famine, it's still the most disheartening picture of humanity ever. Yeah, this is basically like... I I really liked the book The Road by Cormac McCarthy. Okay. This is basically The Road by Cormac McCarthy without cannibalism. Like, that's... It's it's roughly comparable, because you... 
the mo- the thing I found the most disturbing in the entire book, and there are a lot of things to be totally creeped out by, uh, was the fact that kids are put out of the house at three. Like you yeah. don't sleep inside as a three year old. Fend for yourself. You got to make your own shelter. Well, not even make your own shelter. I think you're allowed to sleep under the granary, maybe if they let that happen. Yeah, there, there's the granary thing, and they're like the groups of kids who band together to survive. But that usually doesn't really work very well because they're always stealing from each other anyway. So, um, well, the, what's crazy is like they aren't just stealing from you know each other. They they form these sort of fluid packs where you have like the three year olds through the ten year olds kind of hook up, and uh, you know are a loose you confederacy. The, yeah, you, you defend yourself from the older kids, and the older kids then group up. But inevitably, you're kicked out and you splinter. So it's just it's so weird that. Uh, the bonds that you think would be formed through that sort of communal labor just don't happen. Like it, it, they just don't exist. It's yeah, it's kind of it's mind bending. And Turnbull spends the entire time like making you understand that. It's like society is an illusion. I'm totally depressed. I got kind of sick of him by the end of this book. <laughs> yeah, I mean it, it's it's oppressive, is what it is. Um, it, it's difficult to read at times. But what he spends a great deal of his time documenting is just these little vignettes of tragedy um, where he he will describe the the terrible fate of the elderly woman who gets pushed off the cliff and left broken and dying in the middle of this gorge. And people are just by her husband, I think, is the, the impression that you get from that scene. Yeah, yeah, they, they were setting off together to move to a different hut or go off to die. I can't remember. It's been months now since I've read it. Um, but yeah, just a mishap occurs. She's old and broken and injured, and she is clearly dying, and people don't help her. In fact, they just stand up on the ledge and laugh at her. Or, yeah, yeah. Uh, at... Or, like, the uh, the Adupa girl, who was uh, the one who was very, very uh, malnourished, sick, dying, goes back to her family and is begging her family to feed her. And instead, they let her in the hut, and she's like, oh, good, you know, you're going to take care of me, you'll let me sleep in your hut, maybe I'll get some food and water. They lock her in the hut to starve her to death so that she will leave them alone. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, so this is, um, I think I found the passage about that, the elderly woman. Okay. Um. Uh, so I think her name was Laono. That uh, sounds so, right. So here we go. I'm just gonna start here. Um, they knew that it was silly of them to expect to go on living, and having watched others, they knew that the spectacle really was quite funny. This is an old person dragging themselves around because they're so weak from uh, starvation and age that they they can't walk. So they joined in the laughter. Perhaps if we had left Laono, she would have died laughing, happy that she was at least providing her children with amusement. But what did we do? We prolonged her misery for no more than a few brief days. For although Longoli did let her into his compound, he took her food and gave her neither food nor water. Even worse, we reminded her of when things had been different, of days when children had cared for parents and parents for children. She was already dead, and we had made her unhappy as well. At the time, I was sure we, we were right doing the only human thing, human in quotation marks. In a way, we were. We were making life more comfortable for ourselves, confirming our own sense of superiority. But now I wonder, in the end, 
I had, but now I wonder, period, sorry. In the end, I had a greater respect for the eek, and I wonder if their way was not right, if I too should not have stood with the little crowd at the top of the Aurora, an Aurora being a dry riverbed, uh, and laughed at Leono, flapped about, as Leono flapped about like a withered old tortoise on its back, then left her to die, perhaps laughing at herself instead of crying. And that is the mountain people in a nutshell. More or less. And I've, I've got a couple of quotes that I always liked, um, one of which appears in another book uh, that I'm fond of that we'll get to, I'm sure, at some point. But uh, it's his discussion of what holds a society together. And I guess I'll just read it. In larger scale societies, we are accustomed to diversity of belief. We even applaud ourselves for our tolerance not recognizing that a society not bound together by a single powerful belief is not a society at all, but a political association of individuals held together only by the presence of law and force, the very existence of which is a violence. That's in this book. Yes, and quoted in uh, another book that's a favorite of mine on uh, the morality of violence, but... (laughs) Yeah. My God, like, that is the most cynical view of human society. It's like, nah, we're, we're just held together by... Basically, the might makes right approach, and insofar as we can keep people in line, it's a society. And then when we can't anymore, it breaks yeah, down. Yeah, well, it's and sort of. It. I, what? Who was the Enlightenment thinker that proposed the the, the war of all versus all? Uh, it was this idea that before there was a culture or society to structure everything, everyone was essentially in conflict with one another, and it was only after there was this overarching authority established were we able to peacefully coexist uh, i mean that sounds like hobbes i can't remember i'd have to look it up i mean i'm sure that everybody was talking about the same thing i don't think it was hobbes but no no i know what you're talking about i can't yeah it was like montesquieu or one of those dudes sort of uh, let's see let's see what the innertrons can tell me because it's gonna bug if you me. do the war of all versus all you'll probably get the one you're looking for because that's the the catchphrase that jumps out at me. Yeah, it actually is. Uh, yeah, it's Hobbes. It is Hobbes. Shocker. I thought I hadn't read anything by him, but I must have at some point. Yeah, I I, I know that was his concept. I just thought the phrase came from somewhere else, but uh, shouldn't question myself. I, I was right. <laughs> right. I'm good with my Enlightenment <laughs> scholars, damn it. That's what I do. Um, oh, man. But yeah, no, that, that was Hobbes' whole state of nature idea, the idea that everyone has essentially infinite overlapping rights over everything which puts everyone in constant conflict because sharing is stupid and that's what the eek believe yeah i mean again a, a passage from the opening of the book most of us are unlikely to admit readily that we can sink as low as the eek but many of us do and with far less cause however that is left for the reader to decide for himself this story concerns the Eek, the mountain people, and their struggle for, uh, for survival. Although the experience was far from pleasant and involved both physical and mental suffering, I am grateful for it. In spite of it all, and contrary to the first tidal wave of disillusionment, it has added to my respect for humanity and my hope that we who have been civilized into such empty beliefs as the essential beauty and goodness of humanity may discover ourselves before it is too late. Again, the most cynical book ever written. Well, and I mean, it, that's one of the things that sort of, I mean, not that it's cynical, but the, I, there's a lack of understanding of how the Eek arrived at this situation. 
you don't get a great deal of the historical and political background that you need for this. He gives you some briefing on it, but I feel like a more thorough explanation would have been beneficial. Well, cause, and I think that's what lends the, the, the sense of overarching cynicism or at least depression because you have all this anger that boils up inside you at the way these people are treating each other and you want to uh, kind of exercise that and, and give it expression, but you can't really be mad at the Eek because their life sucks so bad. Like, you know, what are, what are you going to do? You, you're really going to be down on the Eek? Uh, you can't get much worse off than they are. What do you so, so you then you you sort of revert to the old uh, white guilt that oh there's a there's a system involved here and some system has oppressed the eek, but the book doesn't clarify uh, what system that is. So you know you want to oh is it the Ugandan government? Well it might be, but we don't really know. They offer them a different place to settle. There's a point in the book where a small group actually escapes to what sounds like a paradise, and then comes back. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, it's and- like. <laughs> it's go- oh man, uh, yeah, it, it is really kind of it's a it's shocking. There are many shocking moments in this book. Yeah, and I guess that is the chief criticism that's been leveled against it in the past that I've seen from other writers is that uh, it is a shocking book, but sensationally so. Like, is he hamming this up a bit? Is is what people wonder? Is he? overemphasizing the negative stuff and never ever mentioning anything good is he unfairly biased in this view because he was there during a time of great turmoil it would be like saying that all of russian history is summed up by purging the kulaks or you know everybody in france is rose pierre right 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 late term rose pierre early on he wasn't that bad a guy but as it went uh, <laughs> um, yeah, but it, it, it's it's great terror, great purge kind of stuff. And okay, you know those were terrible events, and it did show that society has limits, and that human morality has limits, and that we all can do terrible, terrible things. At the same time, that's not every single day, every year in a country's history. There are high points and there are low points, and I think the the criticism for Turnbull's view is that he was far too narrow, that he picked out this snapshot of misery amid a time where, in the past, when things were going well for the Eek, they did have a society, they did have a culture, and he talks about it in part, and then just largely dismisses it. Uh, like the, the religion section, where they had this universal kind of religion for their society, where people bought in, this is the tribal belief, this is what we do, these are our mystical beliefs and it unified them in the way that the religions can do. And, uh, and he said, well, but now they've lost that, and that's it. That's the end. But yeah. why would the story have to stop there? This could be a terrible time of transition. Things could get better. They could get even worse. Who knows? But to just say, well, now this is how it is. This is who these people are, and that's the end of it. Uh, it's it's a bit uh, Well, I mean, uh, just to, to be fair... Um, the all of the Eek aren't actually that bad. There are many good people among them, but they seem to be the exception of the rule. Right, right. No, I mean, the kid who ran himself to death, for instance, was, as best I can tell, a, a wonderful human being uh, and was indeed willing to run errands for Turnbull all the time for no pay, essentially. Yeah. And, uh, and Turnbull laments that he probably contributed to killing the guy because he 
overexerted him and he didn't have enough food or water. But uh, yeah, so it, yeah. it's not like it's a society completely devoid of all humanity. But I think Turnbull focuses well, obviously th- on the interesting parts, which are those parts that lack humanity that are shocking. Well, but it's not even really the interesting parts. Turnbull is with them for two years, and this is his experience among them. You know. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's a first-hand account of how he lived with them. So, I mean, it, I don't know. What I don't. That... I mean, I don't. He may editorialize, but if he does, I mean, it's it's not even sensationalism. It's just depressing. It is incredibly depressing, and I I think there's a competing study that shows them in a slightly different light, and mm. that's been the focus, I think, of, of a lot of the criticism that's been leveled against the book, because it's been a very controversial work through its history. Uh, and for at least one reason, this is not your typical kind of anthropological, oh, let's no. go in and, <laughs> yeah. and, and be objective and document. He goes in as judgmental as he wants to be. There is every well, bit of subjective judgment in every word that he writes, and he doesn't care. He doesn't even apologize for it. Well, what's interesting is that he's not necessarily judging the eek. I mean, a lot of the negative opinions he develops about the eek, he then extrapolates to broader humanity. And that's sort of like, you know, society is that kind of meaningless construct that just keeps us from strangling each other in the dark. Yeah, more or less. And it's funny because you see all of that negativity, but then in one of the quotes that I read earlier, he's talking about how it increased his appreciation for humanity. Really? Can, can you say that? Because virtually every other word in this book is you saying, God, we, we suck, guys. Yeah, this dude, is really I don't know awful. if you guys knew this, but we are, you know, one bad stock day away from murdering each other. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's doom and gloom the whole book. And he's, you know, like, got to eat dinner inside a, the back of a Land Rover because people are going to steal my food and, like... Everybody's starving to death and murdering their children, and society is just this construct of might makes right. And uh, but I mean, I I really appreciate humanity a lot now, you know, like <laughs> pooping in a dry riverbed for two years. This is great. I love starving to death. Oh, yeah, I love Maybe humanity. Maybe he loves humanity. It's just he realizes like I love white people. There's no other way to put it. That's just what it boils down to. We screwed over Africa so bad that I'm not even going to go there. Well. The African issue is uh, that's such a hairy point. Yeah, we'll yeah. just we'll sidestep that. Whatever. Next up, here I'll add this. We should read King Leopold's Ghost. There's okay. One okay. There. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm tempted to go ahead and just add that to the list. It's a good one. It's a good one. Um, but what? Uh, I mean, is there anything else to be said other than you know? Turnbull got himself into a good bit of trouble after writing this, and that it's super depressing. I I, I would say that it's worth reading, um, but it's not. I don't know. I don't know. You got to kind of be. I would definitely be reading another book at the same time, <laughs> See, or at like... least interspersing it with episodes of Thirty Rock just to add some <laughs> levity to your life. Yeah, um, you can like spiral down into this. Uh pit of despair i guess by reading it and it is one of the few books out of the many that i've read that have uh, that has been able to make me weep openly in public that doesn't usually happen but like (laughs) it was so depressing that i actually kind of broke down and um 
so yeah, it, it can be rough, but I think it's definitely worth reading um, with the caveat that you've got to have uh, an idea of what you're getting yourself into and hopefully a bit of a, a stalwart constitution. But, yeah. Yeah. So that's, uh, I guess, are we going to wrap this up? That's book club. I guess that is book club. A very jam-packed episode two. Uh, again, apologies for my apologies for the delay or something. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but whatever. I got to go eat Flemish chicken or something. It was worth it. Nobody's hating, John. Or they, If anybody complained, it would just be hating. That's, that's the definition of hating. You didn't put out a podcast. Why'd you go to Europe? You shut up, hater. Yeah, more or less. That's uh, I'm going to agree with your assessment there. So, uh, so this has been Book Club number two. We talked about some books. It was good time. We're going to talk about more books, and there are going to be more books to read. So, Jesus Christ, like actually read these books and participate yeah. in the discussions, and then maybe like they're good could... books. You might learn something. The history of the internet one has been great so far. Yeah, that has just come in in the mail. Since I got back mid-month, I had it on order. It's, it's just arrived, so I'm going to get to start that this week. So once, read that one and then read another uh, a sort of book that's not a companion, but it's an interesting read nonetheless. Who controls the internet? Okay. Um, so, anywho. I'm going to book note club. that one. We like books. People should read more. That is all. Yeah, literacy is... Uh... Maybe not the strongest aphrodisiac, but uh, let's just say let's say it works. <laughs> yeah. mm, after reading the mountain people. Uh, yeah, yeah, I know. Ass. The first thing I want to do is run out <laughs> and fall into the lusty arms. Aren't you supposed of... to cry after, not before? I thought that's how it works. Yeah, you just you hire the hooker. She shows up. You're just in the floor, <laughs> naked, sobbing. This Honey, is... I'm gonna have to charge extra for <laughs> this. <laughs> this is. This is weirder than normal. Yeah. Look, usually I'm the one crying, but, uh, I mean, uh, <laughs> I've got any uh, cash up front. That is funny. Good stuff. All right. Well, um, Mr. White, thank you very much. I appreciate your assistance in the production of this fine program, as always. Yes, you're quite welcome. I enjoy uh, the the sort of added... Um, motivation to read and read a lot of stuff that I never would have found. Like I never would have read the mountain people in a million years, but it was good. And yeah. Fun. And I'd never heard of the, uh, the book you've recommended for this month. So I'm eager to pick it up and get into that because it sounds like actually uh, just a fascinating topic. Yeah. Are we going to clap? We're definitely going to clap. Yeah.